All right, on today's episode, we have Dr. Tanya Elliott, who has almost too many accomplishments to name. First, she is dual board certified in internal medicine and allergy and clinical immunology. Uh, she was the medical director of Doctors on Demand, where she helped develop the nation's first virtual physician workforce. She is now the chief medical officer for virtual care at Ascension Health, one of the largest healthcare systems in the United States. She chairs the Telemedicine and Technology Task Force for the American College of Allergy and Asthma and Immunology. She's made numerous TV appearances on talk about telemedicine, internal medicine, immunology, on programs like CBS This Morning, Dr. Phil, Good Morning America, and most importantly, she is a mother. So Dr. Elliot, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Great. So how did you first get into telemedicine? So I have a funny story. Um, I um, worked in Park Avenue and allergy practice shortly after I completed my fellowship training. Um, and after like a few months of working, I thought, you know, as an allergist, it would be so great to see into patients' homes. Um, that was one thing because I'm constantly talking to them about what's in their environment that could be making their symptoms worse. So if they have dust mite allergy, do they have carpet? Do we have bedding? And I remember in my office, we would hand them a piece of paper and a crayon and have them kind of circle. Oh, yeah, there's carpeting here. We've got drapes here. And I said, it would just be so much easier instead of asking these questions and pulling this information out of the patient if I could just do a walkthrough of their home. And then the other thing was patients would come to me, it would take three weeks to get an appointment. By the time they came in to see me, they would talk about how bad their rash was three weeks ago. And I would pray that they had a picture. Um, and if they didn't, it was really hard, you know, to get um, a clear picture of what exactly it was that was happening. So I thought, gosh, it would be easy to just have an on-demand visits or something with my patients, get them to connect with me, save a picture. So I had a business idea. I thought, well, maybe I will do home visits. And I'll go to people's houses, my doctor bag, you know, reinstate kind of the home visits. And then in New York City, I'm like, okay, well, there's no way. I, first of all, spend all my money in cab fare, maybe see three patients. So that's not scalable. So I told my mom about this idea because it's a nice Italian girl. I tell my mother everything. Um, so I tell my mom this idea and she's like, wow, it sounds like a great idea, honey. Go for it. Um, and then she calls me back a week later, very upset. And she says, Tanya, Dr. Phil stole your idea. And I'm like, Dr. Phil stole my idea. What are you talking about? She said, he's starting a company with his son. It's called Doctor on Demand. You have to look into it and figure it out. So Dr. Phil kind of stole my idea. He did it. But um, they had just started Doctor on Demand. This was November 2013. And she saw on television that on the Doctor's TV and Dr. Phil show, they were showcasing this sort of video visit on demand um, offering where you can download an app, click a button, and connect with your doctor. Um, so I reached out to the chief medical officer at the time and I said, Hey, I think this is a great idea. I've been thinking about it for my allergy patients, but I could also see value across other specialties. And they were like, great, come join us. So I first joined as a doctor, just seeing patients on the platform. And after just a couple of days of working, I'm like, this is amazing. Well beyond just like being able to see environmental triggers into a home, I'm developing great relationships with patients. Um, there was this whole new like patient guided physical examination we were going through together. I was developing strong relationships with patients. They were asking me if I could be their, their primary care doctor. Um, and so I was hooked on telemedicine and I was yeah, like really cool. passionate about it. And that sort of kicked off my, my whole career. 
Oh, that's amazing. So when you were, so you started off as, as a, a regular doctor for Doctors on Demand, but how did you progress on up and, and what were some of the biggest challenges you faced uh, and that you had to tackle as, as a leader at Doctors on Demand? Yeah, so um, I progressed quickly, I think, because it's actually interesting because I had like broadcast media experience. I had really good, what I term now is website manner, where I'm like, this is just like, television where you have to think about, you know, how your lighting is and your hand movements. And I use my hands a lot. And so you have to think about all of those things. Um, So I kind of developed the skills rather quickly to effectively communicate with my patients through this modality. And I thought, gosh, it's going to be really important to recruit the right kinds of doctors with the right personalities, or if not, train them with certain competencies on how to effectively communicate with patients this way. Because as you know, we're trained in medical school and it's all about if a patient is sad, put your, you know, hand them a tissue in person. It's all based on in person. So what does that look like? What does that doctor-patient interaction look like through video? Um, And I truly believe that the quality of care that could be delivered is equivalent. So, but it required training. Um, So in speaking with the, you know, their leadership there, I eventually became their medical director and I was responsible for recruiting, hiring and training the doctors and really having this virtualist physician workforce nationwide. Um, You know, they were they were fun challenges where even doctors who had signed up to be part of Doctor on Demand were still had some trepidation or maybe they were first signing up because they said, "Okay, well, I don't want to go into the office anymore, but I still want to work. Um, And so they were kind of coming in with all different reasons, you know, maybe it was a work-life balance thing, what have you. Um, But it was that first uh, onboarding and training that I would do with them, which was like the aha moment. Like, oh, wow, you can do a physical exam. This isn't just like a telephone conversation with my patient and like glorified triage. Um, I can develop relationships with my patients. This is really neat. And so we collectively like gathered feedback on best practices and training and over the course of, you know, the three plus years with Dr. On Demand really like learned from one another to figure out like what virtual care should really look like. What are the guardrails? What are the standards? So it was a great experience sort of working with the physicians um, and, and kind of getting them to be on board. A bigger challenge, which we still face today, which is like, you know, people not understanding that, whether that's business leaders or selling into a payer or an employer, um, or even still my own family who, despite even encouraging me to go into this, will still still think they have to go to the doctor to get their prescriptions. Right. And changing that behavior and helping people understand that virtual care really could be the standard of care. Um, and so sometimes you feel like a broken record saying the same thing over and over again for, you know, eight, 10 years. Um, but I would say that that's yeah. the biggest challenge is kind of framing up to people the value of virtual care um, and that not making an apples to apples comparison to brick and mortar care because it's not the same thing. And it's also not that you could compare, OK, this is what happens in an in-person visit and this is what happens in a virtual visit and let's make sure they're equivalent. We're in this for the long game, like virtual care should be part of the standard of longitudinal care delivery, care delivered over time. Um, so. That's kind of the work that continues to to be done in this space. Oh, that's fantastic. So I read your paper on uh, that you published last year about patient perceptions on uh, physician interactions. And the data came from, I believe, 2016. How do you think those perceptions have changed as a result, as a result of COVID and, 
everybody really having to do it and try and get more experience with it. Yeah. So I, th I think the findings and we looked at review, basically the paper was looking at reviews of over 50,000 patients that we saw through Doctor on Demand and actually looking at the ratings, the comments, right? Because at the end of Doctor on Demand and lots of these, you know, virtual care platforms, you can do a star rating, one through five stars. Right. Um, I started to notice as a doctor the value of the patient feedback because at the end of every shift, I would get feedback anonymous from every single one of my patients. We also had a process in place where we would actively review all of the one and two star cases, all the negative feedback to say like, hey, what happened? And that would help inform our technology if it's a technology issue or if it was an right. issue where the patient was disappointed, they didn't get their antibiotics or disappointed because maybe the communication of the physician, the, the skill, communication skills of the physician were not ideal. Um, we would leverage that as for like as real time feedback. But then I said, well, what about all the five-star ratings? Like, what is it about the interaction? What is it about virtual care that makes patients pleased with the care that's being delivered? So what drives a five-star rating was what I was trying to get at. And when you first think about it, it's like, well, of course, it's convenience. You know, of course, it's a cool app. Of course, it's technology. Well, it wasn't the case. Actually, of those 50,000 reviews, over 30% of them were around rapport building. The doctor actively listened to me. I felt heard. Or maybe it was the doctor was so thorough. Um, I really had a good understanding of my overall care. Um, the doctor spent time with me. I didn't feel rushed. Meanwhile, we knew the average calling for a virtual visit for a virtual urgent care was about eight or nine minutes. So there was really yeah. something special about that doctor-patient interaction. So what we did is we said, okay, let's look at core competencies of communication that we're trained in in medical school, like sharing information and providing guidance and active listening and shared decision-making, and then match those comments to those core competencies. And that's where we found it was about the relationship building and the rapport. So I think if, if for nothing else, if we had redone that study today, we would just have more numbers supporting that. And I think the fact that with be, we see be, virtual behavioral health probably being the specialty that's here to stay where more than 50% of vir, uh, behavioral health visits are virtual, it makes sense. The doctor-patient relationship through video um, is impactful, it's meaningful, and should not be underestimated. Um, and also the fact that primary care doctors were doing virtual care and felt like they were able to maintain their relationship with patients, it reinforced what we found in 2016. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so you were doctors on demand, what, and now you're at Ascension Health, but between that, were you also involved in telemedicine and other, uh, other hospitals or organizations? Yeah. So a couple of things. One was I was chief medical officer of a preventive health company and we, mm. it was called EHE. And what we used to do back in the day was executive health exams. That's what EHE stood for. Uh, and then, yep. you know, it was a privately owned business and then it was bought by um, a broader company that really had the vision of saying, you know, you know, doing these comprehensive examinations to find a needle in a haystack to keep it executive healthy is kind of old school. What we need to do is real population yeah. health and employee health and keeping employees healthy. So they challenged the organization to rethink the annual exam and preventive medicine. So I was brought on as chief medical officer to re-envision that clinical program. And what we did was we said, okay, 
how you think, how you move, and how you eat. That's how we're going to keep healthy all, people healthy all year long. And the doctor's visit to make sure that you're checking the boxes for age and risk factor, appropriate screenings, is important. But it's not the whole picture when it comes to your overall health. So how can we engage patients 365 year-round and give them, quote, surround sound with other digital tools, like we give them a wearable device. So we, I, we instituted a program called a wearable device onboarding. You get an Apple Watch or a step counter, what do you do with it? How could it impact your overall health? Let us medicalize this space for you and say, hey, you're going to have a goal of 7,500 steps a day, but we're going to give you a coach that's sort of with you every step of the way. And for how you eat, let's keep food diaries, digital food diaries. Maybe we can serve up to you a healthy food deliveries on Seamless or things like that. So we were thinking about ways in which we could leverage technology to improve patients' overall health. But at the same time, there was always a physician as the quarterback. Um, so that was the work I did at EHE, and then I was recruited over to CVS Aetna to help them with their telehealth reimbursement policies, um, to help with some of their chronic disease management programs for women's health care, for cardiovascular disease, all through you know ways in which we can leverage technology, put devices in the hands of patients, and then act upon that data that's coming through to keep people healthy at home. So... Uh... Reimbursement. Let's talk a little bit about that since you worked on that policy. Uh, with COVID, a lot of the, the, the reimbursement restrictions have been lifted just because, hey, people need care. Uh, but there's the concern in the industry of, oh, those restrictions are going to come back. I'm curious to know, how do, how do insurance companies view telemedicine? Is it something they, they fear? Is it there's something they're trying to keep from getting out? Or is it something that you see them actively encouraging because they see the value in it? So... There are a lot of myths out there as it relates to telehealth reimbursement. Um, insurance companies absolutely believe in the value of telehealth. It's been proven out for virtual urgent care and been able to reduce unnecessary ER visits. And that's why almost every insurance company offers virtual urgent care on demand as a carve out, as a, just a separate carve out, because they know that they can reduce unnecessary ER visits that way and improve access to care for their members. Um, almost Every commercial plan had a telemedicine reimbursement policy in place pre-pandemic. And a lot of the big plans reimburse with parity. So it's a little bit, um, we're confusing things a little bit when it comes to some of the restrictions around telehealth being lifted. There were a couple of restrictions that were lifted and are likely to go back. One is the licensure piece, right? Once a pandemic hit, multi-state licensure didn't matter. You didn't need a license in that state and you were able to practice across state lines. That's likely to come back. That has nothing to do with the payer. That has to do with the state licensing boards. And we right. as physicians need to continue to advocate for licensure compacts, just like nurses have licensure compacts. The other is reimbursement for telephonic visits. Um, and that's still a debate that's going on and we continue to advocate for it, especially because there are certain areas where you can't, there's there are Wi-Fi deserts. And so it's either telephone mm -hmm. or nothing. And so those patients should receive that. But overall, we should be, you know, we should really be working towards doing virtual video visits wherever we can. But there should be, we believe, exceptions around allowing for telephonic encounters, especially in patients where they don't have access to Wi-Fi. But those are the two main things. The other area is in terms of what's covered on a telehealth services list. So all of your standard E&M codes, your routine follow-ups, your regular visits, behavioral health visits, all those things 
were covered before and will continue to be covered, but they expanded the telehealth services list to include other things like speech therapy, PT, OT, and a number of other things, which are not the majority of telehealth visits that are conducted today, but that list may go back to pre-pandemic. If that's not impacting your you know, general primary care doctor or most specialists, it does impact others and we will continue to advocate for as long as there's quality standards are met, um, those other specialties should be able to have those types of visits. I think more data is needed and more advocacy is needed around there. The last thing that I'm gonna say about reimbursement is that states have, oh, I believe it's 42 states, have laws in place around telemedicine reimbursement. Some states require parity, meaning you have to reimburse for virtual visits as well as, as the same rate as um, in person. And others require reimbursement but they don't say that you have to reimburse at the same rate. So it's just important for us to understand telemedicine reimbursement is not going away once the doors are back open and we're back to normal. Um, most state plans like Medicaid, most state Medicaid um, laws and regulations have, have implemented um, things that will continue to remove originating site requirements and some of those other uh, requirements that were in place. So most state Medicaid um, plans have already uh, put actions in place to, to remove originating site requirements. And we know, and we've been following CMS very closely, that they're moving forward with removing originating site requirements as well. So crystal ball moving forward in the future, originating site requirements are likely to go away. Jury is still out around telephone but telehealth visits through video will absolutely be reimbursed. And it's a matter of which states require reimbursement with parity versus reimbursement without dictating the rates of reimbursement. Oh, that's fantastic. You mentioned, uh, you know, data, needing data to make some of these decisions. Well, over the past year and a half, there's been a ton of people using telemedicine and it, through the pandemic with all these people using uh, telemedicine for OT, PT, and these other maybe non-traditional telemedicine uh, um, uh, services, is that going to be sufficient data for these insurers to make some type of informed data-driven decision about keeping the reimbursement in place for those type of services? I think directionally it'll be accurate, but there are so many things that occurred during the pandemic, you know, ambulatory surgeries were canceled, you know, entire clinics were completely closed. The only, you know, so your data is really dirty. What we're really advocating for is more time. Now that the world is back open, or at least from a healthcare perspective, you can access care anywhere. And it's not that ambulatory offices are closed. We're going to need another 24 months to be able to collect the right kind of data to prove out that there aren't any, um, there aren't, issues as it relates to virtual care. Uh, but again, it's so important for us to not make apples to apples comparison to in-person visits and think about the incremental value of virtual visits. For example, you could have a visit with your doctor, your primary care doctor, your cardiologist, and your GI doctor all on a call focused on you. Tell me that that's not superior to a patient showing up in three different doctor's offices in that day and then having to recall and retell their story. Oh, my primary said this, my, my cardiologist told me this, the GI doctor said that. So how could it not reduce medical error if you're leveraging technology to do three-way conference calls, for example? How are we not improving care when you're, enable, you're able to include caregivers on a, on a virtual call without having them a whole slew of people show up in your doctor's office? 
Um, so I think that there are, we have to think about things that virtual care can do that brick and mortar care can't do. And we also have to think about that to some extent, some of our cadence of follow-up with our patients is arbitrary. Your diabetic patient comes in every three months. Where's the data that supports that every three, every 90 days, you need to see your doctor in person, face-to-face -face, in order to have improved outcomes. So what I'd like to see are more hybrid care models. Once a year, you go in to see your primary care doctor for all of your you know, in-person um, vaccinations or your retinal screenings or your foot exams and everything. And then the other touch points are virtual. And maybe it's a text-based interaction. Maybe the patient's on a remote patient monitoring program. Maybe they're interacting with a coach. Maybe it's a virtual visit with a doctor. But we really need to start evolving our care models and stop comparing it to these arbitrary standards that we've set. Right. When, when we created Doximy, that was the, the original thing was we were looking at prenatal care and asking the question, do pregnant moms really need 15 in-person visits? And we're like, no, they probably need three or four in-person visits. We can do the rest by video. And that's the, that's that need that caused us to create Doximy essentially. It's, so it's, it's reflective to, to, to what you're doing there. So, so you, you've moved over to Ascension Health. How are you applying these principles to your current job? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, you know, I just learned that yesterday that that's how Doximy was founded to improve prenatal care delivery. And if you look at now, the ACOG has come out with guidelines to say, like, yep, you know what, this is just as good a standard of care where you don't need yep. to have every single visit in person. And I know after having two kids, I'm like, I have to come in every week in my third trimester. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, for what? So I could get my blood pressure checked. I asked my doctor. I said, look, can I just have a blood pressure cuff at home and tell you what my blood pressure is? Like, what else? You know, I'm happy yeah. to have a conversation with you and talk to you about what's going on and that my feet are swollen. But why am I coming in every single week for 12 weeks? This is wild. Yeah. So anyway, I, I really commend you for, for that. It makes you know complete sense. So the work we're doing at Ascension, a few things. One is virtual care should be the standard of care to make sure you're providing good access to care for patients. And by that, I mean all doctors should be comfortable offering virtual visits to their patients for routine follow-ups, um, really thinking through, does this patient actually have to come into the office? Do I have to physically put my hands on the patient? Do they need a procedure or vaccine? Or is it really about sharing information, providing guidance, and getting a few objective pieces of information that I could get through a video visit? So that's, you know... Um, and we've had over 7,000 of our doctors do virtual visits. Um, the second piece is when a patient's calling up, let's say, to cancel an appointment, maybe you address some of the challenges and say, well, how about if it's a virtual appointment? You know, And then we've actually seen a reduction in cancellations or people who are no showing for appointments by offering them virtual. Because we know there's lots of challenges as it relates, especially to social determinants of health. And we're really committed to serving poor and vulnerable patients. They can't take off of work. They can't find childcare for their kids. They don't have transportation. So we should be proactively offering virtual visits for those populations and making sure that they stay engaged. So sort of as like a baseline, that's an expectation for our Ascension doctors to be offering virtual visits provided they believe it's good quality care for their patients. The second is really that's about the hybrid care model work that I was just alluding to before, which is which patient, which visits should be virtual, which should be in person, and what are the touch points in between? So we've got a comprehensive remote patient monitoring program. Our Ascension has one of the most mature programs in the country. They've been going at it since 2015. So we've got disease management programs for diabetes, joint replacement, post-operative care, 
um, cardiac care, a number of different ones, and, and also prenatal and postnatal programs, where we provide people with devices, FDA clear devices, and we're monitoring that information, but the goal is really to keep patients healthy at home. So we're gonna to continue to expand our remote monitoring capabilities and then thinking through new care models. So if the doctor doesn't need to be pinged with this information all the time, but they do need to be made aware of what's going on with their patient, but really expanding and thinking of new innovative hybrid care delivery, mon um, hybrid care delivery models that really leverage technology and these real-time data insights that remote patient monitoring can give us. What are the biggest challenges you face as you're building these hybrid care models and, and how are you trying to overcome them? The biggest challenge is we are trying to fit all of this into our existing workflows, which are created for brick and mortar care and our existing reimbursement structure, which is based in a fee-for-service world. So the biggest challenge is asking everybody to take what they know about the way that healthcare is delivered and reimbursed and forget all of it. And then sit down with a blank piece of paper and write out the job that needs to be done. What's the job that needs to be done? We need to interact with our patients, educate our patients, and improve their health outcomes. So. Now we have all these tools within our armamentarium. Which tools would you use in order to effectively communicate with patients? You have an option to bring them into the office if you need for procedure-based care. You have an option to send services into the home, including diagnostic lab tests if you wanted to. You have an option to ask your patients a question every single day and monitor and track what their response is. How are you feeling today? Maybe that's the question we should be asking our patient and that improves outcomes. So we need the freedom and flexibility to start to test and learn. And the beauty of these technologies is we'll learn quickly. We can fail fast so we can beta test all of this so that we can figure out what the ideal cadence of communication is with patients. And I don't think that it's once a year in the office or once every three months in the office for chronic conditions. I think that it's leveraging different types of technologies to be able to interact with patients with a goal of keeping them healthy doing their everyday life instead of having to stop everything and you know show up in my office. I want them to continue to live their lives. But with that is also, who's the right care team? Is it nurses, is it coaches? At what point is the doctor involved? What information is the right information? So what we really need is an opportunity to just test and learn, which is why we're hopeful maybe in a value-based care world where we're really just focusing on keeping people healthy um, and not worried about fee-for-service, maybe that's the environment to do that, or, you know, grants from the government or what have you. But in the, in the ideal world, we can kind of test out what the ideal care model looks like, but that's the biggest challenge. We have an infrastructure that's set up for in-person right. care and fee-for-service. Right. Have you seen any early success with this model? So I think some of the startups have done it really well. I think, you know, Livongo's done a good job. Vita Health has done a good job. There are num you know, there's the Omadas of the world. Um, so I think that there are a number of startups that have been able to test and learn and do that. I think one of the challenges is how does it integrate into the in-person care? Mm -hmm. So I think some of the most successful programs, although it's hard to scale, are the ones that have a brick and mortar footprint and a virtual footprint. Um, but that's sort of why I came to a health system to say like, look, we already have that brick and mortar. We've got surgeries if you need surgery. We have hospital if you need hospital. We already kind of have that footprint. So then now how can we take some of this and digitize it and then 
make sure the patient gets to the best care, but at least we have full view. We have full visibility into the full spectrum of a patient's needs. Um, so we'll see that, you know, I think the jury's still out in terms of who's going to win at this healthcare, you know, disruption, but I'm sure you would agree that it needs to happen because our current system is broken, it's redundant, and it's costing us way too much money. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say this needs to happen. So you read my mind uh, perfectly. So you've been a bit, big advocate of the quadruple aim. Can you talk a little bit about that? So it really comes down to being delivering high quality care in an efficient and cost effective way, right? And you have two customers. You have your patients as your customers and you have the physicians and the care teams as the customers. So it's really making sure that those customers have the optimal experience. So high quality, cost-effective care and a, and a great experience for both patients and their care teams. What is the, out, what is the desired outcome of this quadruple aim and what, and what do you hope to achieve with it? I think it's through the, the, the lens through which we should be developing all of our programs, right? And a lot of time we're focused, patient experience, patient experience. We want to have a slick app where they can click a button and access X, Y, and Z. And sometimes we forget about the clinician and care team experience. Well, that app is not connected to my EHR, so I'm not going to be able to engage with the patient. So they could be really happy with maybe their appointment scheduling and a couple of things. But if their doctor doesn't have like visibility into the care that's being delivered, it's not going to be a good patient experience. Um, so thinking about designing each program, and we actually have a design team with human-centered design thinkers that partner with us on the development of all these new patient programs. Um, but it's making sure that we're thinking about it through the lens of the physician, through the lens of the care team, through the lens of the clinical and non-clinical staff, and through the lens of the patient, and then anybody else who's important for that patient's health care. And we run each of the programs that we deliver through each of those angles so that we're making sure that we are not kind of solutioning with technology first, and we are keeping kind of all customers, so to speak, happy with the overall care that's being delivered and the experience. And a patient's not going to be happy if their doctor is not pleased with uh, the technology or whatever kind of care. So it really has to be both. Right. Absolutely. That's one of the, the biggest things that uh, we talk about here is uh, you can't solve one problem with another problem. So you don't want to solve you know, a provider's problem, but make it a huge headache for the patient because the patient's just not going to do it and the provider's not going to benefit. So you got to make sure everybody's on the same page, uh, same page with this. So when you started medical school, and where you're at today, how has your perspective of healthcare changed over that time period? I didn't know anything about healthcare when I was in medical school. That's the truth. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, and we actually, we yeah. started, a, uh, we created a graduate medical education curriculum for virtual care at Ascension because we were, there's, I didn't, I didn't even know what telemedicine was when I was in medical school. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't know anything about the business of healthcare when I was in medical school. I was just studying the books and trying to stay above water, you know, and, uh, you, learning what surgical procedures we're supposed to do and, and all that stuff. Um, so the, my perspective has completely changed. Uh, I think, you know, the biggest shift was really when I was in private practice, recognizing the challenges of our existing system, you know, as an allergist, lots of testing that's performed or patients coming in wanting testing for food allergies and thinking they have an allergy and, you know, sometimes demanding that they wanted this test because there was a lack of information about what the tests were for. And some, you go to some doctors, they'll test you to a hundred different things. With me, I really spent the time educating patients, 
here's a reason why we do the test, here's what we would do with the results. But at the end of the day, in a fee-for-service world, it's a, there's a perverse incentive to just do more tests and maybe explain later. So mm -hmm. there was, it was, it was, you know, a challenge, I think, where you realize you want to provide the best possible care for patients, but that's not, you're not necessarily going to be compensated for your, for your efforts that way. Um, and then the other was, I felt completely restricted by being in an office. I wanted to, you know, we have a patient come into the office and strip off all of their clothes and be in a gown. I have no context, no cues about what is going on in that patient's life. Um, I wanted to be able to see a patient in their home environment so that I could get a full picture of what's going on and really have a comprehensive treatment decision made with them that gets at the root cause of the problem. For a diabetic patient, maybe their hemoglobin A1Cs or 9 are really out of control. I Sure, I, if, and when I'm in the office and I have my blinders on and I'm just looking at lab tests and staring at a patient in a gown, I'll start them on a medication. When I have a little bit more context and I understand they just went through a divorce, they're dealing with aging parents, they are stress eating at nighttime, they're not getting enough sleep, my treatment plan is going to be completely different. I'm not prescribing them medication. We're making some lifestyle interventions. So um, I realized I was doing my patients a disservice by just looking at them in an office and treating them just like almost like a number in a gown. Everybody looks the same. Um, so that's when I realized I had to do something different in healthcare. How did you, how, so they didn't teach that to you in medical school. You figured it out on your own. How did you go about learning all these things? And, and, and how, would, how would you recommend teaching this to other young doctors as they're in medical school and entering the, the field? Just learn by doing and, and, and questioning the current state and the status quo and, and asking why. Like, why are we doing this? Why is my patient coming in? You know, why am I seeing them every six months for this? Like, that seemed like a pointless visit. If I were in my patient's shoes, I wouldn't have want to have to come in. I wish I could have just, like, texted with my doctor. Um, and so, you know, medical school gives you the foundation and the core learning to be able to, you know, understand pathophysiology, like understand disease states. Everything else, you're kind of learning on the fly. So I learned it on the fly, and I learned to ask why, and I learned to kind of challenge things that didn't make sense to me. Um, in terms of how we can do this, you know, how medical students can could learn this, I think we need to put together curriculum, an educational curriculum for them, and educate them on all of these digital technologies that exist. Like, have the you know the chief medical officer of a of a successful startup come and give a grand rounds at medical schools. Like we need visibility into these new care models. Med schools aren't teaching it. Residency programs aren't teaching it. And then once you're in the real world, there's not much around graduate medical education. So I would challenge these right. startups and encourage them to actually put together their best practices, what's good about the way the care is being delivered, tell that story, and then provide education to our students and residents and, and other physicians. And that's been a passion of mine, which is why we put together a GME curriculum for virtual care, and we do onboarding with every single new doctor to Ascension on the principles of virtual care. And it's synchronous video visits and appropriate website manner. It's remote patient monitoring. It is deviceless monitoring or now remote therapeutic monitoring. It's facility-based monitoring like tele-ICU programs and tele-stroke and tele-neurology. Um, and it's this whole world of digital therapeutics and clinical informatics. Um, so we teach everyone that every physician or clinician that walks through Ascension doors, we train them with those core competencies. And I think it's so important and it needs to really be the standard across all med schools. 
I'm just curious how to how to do that, how to take what you've done and, and scale that. Have you guys considered how to, to take what you've taught and, and bring it outside of Ascension to, to benefit the, the entire industry? I made a bunch of videos. That's actually, I think, you oh. know, <laughs> I posted a bunch of videos on how to conduct physical examination. I think, I think memorializing the things that we've learned. And like I said, I would encourage startups to do that, you know, to actually walk through what is your clinical protocol? What are your clinical programs? What are your outcomes? What are your patients saying? What are your clinicians saying? Like, and we need to actually, you know, record that, tell those stories, study that, um, and then really define best practices. And I think the other place to do it is to look at national societies like the American Telemed Association and encourage them to bring health systems together and startups together all in the same room so that we could define the practice standards for digital health. Last question. What does the future of healthcare look like to you? Great question. Um, I think that it will be a highly efficient world. It needs to be a highly efficient world. Well, I'll say this is what I want the future of healthcare to be. I don't know if it, it, it will be this way, but at least this is my vision for it. Highly effective and efficient world, just like every other industry was upended by technology. And like, you know, I, I always do the example of like blockbuster video. Remember when you had to like walk in and yeah. get your video off the shelf and then all of a sudden there was Netflix and it was like, why on earth would I walk into a video store? I think that to some extent you're going to see a little bit of that with like ambulatory practice. Um, everyone's going to be operating at the top of their license. Physicians will likely be interacting for exceptions when it comes to, you know, data or information that we're getting from devices that are placed in people's homes. Um, would there be intervening for the exception and saying, hey, this data doesn't make sense or what else is going on in your life? Or so, so for complex diagnostic decisions, um, most of the touch points with patients, I think, will be digital self-service tools like an app for meditation, an app to help me sleep and what have you. And to some extent, that might displace some pharmaceuticals um, as we move more and more towards lifestyle interventions to improve overall health. So it'll be digital self-service tools, maybe um, coaching and, and, and non-clinical care team members that are supporting people and almost being their like daily health assistants or, you know, then another layer of maybe um, advanced practice providers or nurses or what have you. And then that last layer being the physician. And then that will enable you to scale because we're not training enough medical doctors for the amount of people there are in this country. So we need to have highest and best use of our physicians. They need to be able to manage populations, not just individual patient practices. Um, and then again, we can leverage technology to do that. And so with that, you'll see docs practicing across state lines. Um, you can have, you know, a specialist and then a subspecialist and a sub-subspecialist so that you don't have to train a million neurosurgeons or surgery is different, but, you know, a million allergist immunologists, they could be practicing at the type of their, practicing at the top of their license, but it's going to be a different type of medicine that they're practicing. Dr. Elliott, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Great.